1 Corinthians chapter 15 raises the crucial issue of the Christian faith. Did Jesus Christ actually leave the grave clothes behind? Our study leader exposes the thoughts of a man who claimed he actually saw Jesus alive after the crucifixion. If you have your Bible handy, turn to the seventh book of the New Testament. And let's join Dave Wurtzen for a study titled, Jesus' Skeleton Found. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you can build a very strong case for the fact that this shrine that's in the old city of Jerusalem is genuinely the place that enshrines the location of the crucifixion and also the location of the tomb of Gethsemane. You would hardly recognize it if you visited in the city of Jerusalem today because it's a gigantic cathedral and you would have thousands of pilgrims that were coming through that cathedral on a momentary basis. In fact, you can go and if you're a Greek Orthodox, you can look in one particular place. If you're Roman Catholic, you can look in another place. But there's very strong evidence, so it doesn't look like it now. And, and for many, the Protestant version of, of Gordon's Calvary is a lot more satisfying. The scholarly evidence would strongly indicate that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the place where the crucifixion and then the burial in the Garden of Gethsemane took place. Interesting, this article highlighted that some archaeologists and the scholars over there are continually digging. They were digging underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and in a location that they had not touched before, they suddenly found a skeleton, just a skeleton of bones, and that was all that was remaining. They did some carbon dating on these bones, and they were able to prove conclusively that these are first-century bones. And there's a, a great debate that's going on among the archaeological community today because of the location. Obviously, bones are bones, and it, it's hard to get um, you know, a positive identification, but none of these bones have been broken. It's very clear that they're first century bones and because of the location in this obscure place in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's possible that these are none other than the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. And the debate, I'm sure, is going to rage for several weeks and probably several months. How are you going to react to that debate? How do you feel about that? What does it do to your faith if it was proved conclusively that the skeleton of Jesus of Nazareth was found rotting underneath the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now something that I want you to think very clearly about because there's not a lot of clear thinking about spiritual things these days. You see, there are many people in the name of Jesus that would say, it doesn't make any difference. It really does not make any difference. This building won't fall down. The other churches across the Midlothian and across the U.S. and across the world, they're not going to fall down. The clergy, ministers have done a good work. They bring soothing comfort. They're able to dry tears away. Christianity has offered the world a great ethical system. It has, it's, it's one of the bastions of right and wrong. 
You see, so whether or not the skeleton of Jesus of Nazareth had been found or not makes very little difference because the heart of our faith is this religion that we have, and it's a part of our life. It's a part of our way of looking at the world, and therefore we can go right on meeting next Sunday, and we can meet the Sunday after that, and we can carry out our services, and we can marry people, and we can bury people, and we'll just pretend that the story goes on. Because after all, what's important is the story. You see, it's not the bones, it's not the historical Jesus that genuinely counts these days. What counts is a beautiful idea, a, a life-stretching idea that makes us smile and brings a little bit of hope into the dark existence of humanity. Now that's the way that a liberal scholar and a liberal theologian would teach you. It's what enables a liberal pastor to sound evangelical, to sound like he genuinely believes in the Holy Scriptures. And he can tell maybe even some of your parents or some of your kids or some of your relatives things that sound very similar to what I teach you. But it's not the same. And I want you to think very clearly about that. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, okay, I'll give you the given. The dead do not rise from the dead. Premise. The dead do not rise from the dead. So what? And the Apostle Paul drives the logic of that statement. The dead do not rise. And I want to challenge you. It's hard for me humanly. I've been around death a lot. I've been with it before it's dressed up. I've been with it at accidents. I've been with it in the funeral homes. I have gone to the back of the funeral homes and identified bodies and, and had to evaluate with the funeral director, should we let the family see this? I have been there. And death is deadly. It is ugly. It is gruesome. And when I sit there in that gruesome, terrible place, I ask myself, it's impossible for the dead to rise. What I want to say to you, I can be as cynical and I can be as modern and I can be as realistic as any one of you and I can give you the arguments. I can say it's just, let's be realistic. We're going to die. My dogs die. I told you like I've preached to you some Sunday morning. I shared the time right after my collie died. I had to get up and preach. That's, that's hard when you love your dog. And it's easy for me to say, you know, I take that collie, stick him in a hole, cover him up, and then soothe the kids, and life goes right on. I can argue that's just what happens to any of you. And my job as a pastor is just to try to pat you in the back a little bit. Because you're going to die just like my dog dies. And that's just it. And a lot of people believe that in the modern world. Lots of people do. You just die. You live. You have a job, you make money, you get married, you make love, you produce kids, you retire, and then you die. And you've got to do the best you can to muddle through. Try to enjoy it. Try to take a trip to Hawaii. Try to go to Europe. Try to be able to do something that will at least make you smile a little bit because this is all there is. I can argue that case. It's a very strong belief. That's really not the sophisticated belief, however. 
Because if you really push that logically, it's very hard to arrive at that conclusion. Because every one of you struggle with that idea. In fact, even an agnostic that starts to work on that idea, human existence happens, we have physical life, we physically die, and that's all there is. It's awfully hard to deal with this tremendous universal longing in the human heart, this worry in the human heart, this dreaming in the human heart that there's got to be something beyond this. And so down through the centuries, almost every group of human beings come up with a dream of what happens when we die. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts, and certainly he has. And so a very sophisticated Greek idea, which still carries a lot of weight in the modern world, was what happens is we die physically, but the immaterial soul, your personality, floats out of this physical body and, and is joined with the great other, is joined with the great beyond, and you become part of the universal stream of whatever it is. And that can be a very popular idea. What does Christianity teach? It's very possible that both of those ideas were being taught in Corinth. In fact, to make my very best guess of what was being taught in Corinth, it went something like this. The resurrection of Christ means that you're renewed morally. You're renewed spiritually. When you believe in Jesus, a whole new way of looking at the world comes into your life and it produces great changes. And in that sense, we can say that you've been resurrected already. In your baptism, when we took you underneath the water, you were identified with Christ in his death. When we pulled you up out of the water, you were identified with Christ in his resurrection. And therefore, the resurrection has already taken place. Now, the reason I think this is very possibly what was being taught in Corinth is that it's close to what Paul taught. Because Paul will teach that spiritually there is a sense in which we have been resurrected to new life. As I look around, you as born-again believers have been given a new spiritual nature. You have become new creations in Christ. And so there's a reality in that. In 1 Timothy, Paul talks about Alexander and Hymenaeus who were teaching the resurrection already took place. And what they were saying is that the only resurrection there is is this spiritual resurrection. What makes it so attractive is it sounds so spiritual. It sounds so with it. It even sounds Pauline. And that's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is thinking very clearly as he always does and starts to nail down the implications if you believe that there is no bodily resurrection from the dead, what happens to your faith? Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's, let's face the consequences of a false belief. The dead do not rise bodily from the grave. We want to begin with verses 12 through 19, where Paul deals with the very dark, the very discouraging. If you're depressed, this section will make you even more depressed. Because the Apostle Paul drives home the implications of a false belief. But I think if I can get you to feel the down 
and think through the implications of a false belief, then I can really enable you to catch a drink of tremendous life-giving truth when we get to what's genuinely true. Verse 12, the Apostle Paul says this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, now, I want you to understand that throughout this passage, the assumed is that every gospel preacher preaches that Christ bodily rose from the dead. In the first century, the definition of a gospel proclamation involved the reality Christ rose from the dead. In fact, the, the Corinthians were not genuinely debating, did Christ rise from the dead? They were affirming the creed. But they went on to say, generally, the dead do not rise. The dead do not bodily rise from the dead. So the Apostle Paul is going to take that premise, the dead do not rise, drive it back home and show that it destroys their entire Christian faith. They have not seen the implications of that kind of a false belief. But he begins with what is generally assumed among them, and I say this by parenthesis, that gives us tremendous certainty about our faith. In the first century world, there was very little debate among the Christian community at all concerning did Christ bodily rise. The reason that was so is it's awfully hard to debate a fact when there's over 500 witnesses and a whole bunch of them are still living and many of the people could go and talk to somebody who saw the resurrected Christ. It's awfully hard to debate an event that happened 20 years before that there's so many eyewitnesses that can tell you it's true. So that wasn't the debate. 2,000 years later, it can be a very strong debate. But in the first century, it was not. But this over-spiritualized idea of the resurrection was a very intense debate. And it had to do with your hope and my hope about what's going to happen to me. Will I rise? Will I live forever? Will I be able to hug my mother again? Will I be able to see Mary's brothers again in a bodily form? It's a very genuine very deep, very real truth that we need to question, that we need to grapple with. So Paul begins, if, if it be preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say, and here's the false doctrine, there's no resurrection from the dead. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if you preach that the dead do not rise from the dead, then logically that means that Christ could not have risen from the dead. And then he says, if Christ is not raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. They are perishing. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Paul basically says two things. There's two basic fundamental realities that Paul brings out about this false faith. First of all, the apostolic preaching of the cross is a cruel, empty promise. In 
Now, I want you to think clearly about that. If Jesus Christ in history, factual, real history, time, space, history, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then number one, the apostolic witness, which is the foundation of all of Christianity, is a cruel hoax. It's empty. It's vain. If we find the skeleton of Jesus Christ this week, and it's proved categorically, and I understand that would be very difficult to do because you could argue against it. But for the sake of argument, if it could be categorically proven that Christ was rotting in the grave, I, for one, would call off church next week. And I want you to know that. And I would get another job just like that. Because I'm not going to continue to promote and continue to present, continue to tell people to build their entire life on an apostolic witness that was a hoax. You see, that's what the Apostle Paul says when he says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we have been proved to be false witnesses of God. You see, the worst liar there is is someone that says, I am the representative of God. I am speaking by divine inspiration. I have the eternal God speaking through me. Now, if that individual goes on and lies, that's the lie of the first kind, of the worst kind. And Paul is saying, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then that's the kind of a liar that I am. Because I, for one, have gone on record that the eternal God, as a representative of him, you might say as a truthful lawyer for him, I have testified in the court of human existence that this man, Jesus, whom you crucified, is now risen from the dead. And Paul says, if he's not risen, then I am a false witness about Jesus. Some of you ask me, how do I know whether our faith is true? One of, the, one of the rationales for how you can know your faith is true is the question, was the Apostle Paul a truth teller? Was Peter a truth teller? As you go through life, young people and children, you're going to meet lots of people who you can get to know, who you find out lie. And as you examine their lives, it's awfully hard to tell a lie when it's given. Very, very hard. We don't know what happens in a whole lot of situations. But you know, over the course of lifetimes, over the course of events, the truth tends to come out. Charles Colson mentions about the Watergate cover-up and some of the articles he's written about the apostolic witness. And one of the things he brings out is that he experienced firsthand the collapse of a lie. You see, in that government hierarchy, they developed a plot, they developed a plan to cover the truth up. And what Chuck brings out is as the law began to put the pressure on and people began to be threatened and they might go to jail or they might be sued, he shows how this whole fabric of the plot caved right in and the truth came out and people started talking. You see, over time, liars 
tend to be exposed. Now to me, from the bottom of my heart, the longer that I study Paul, and I've spent hours in Paul, the more that I study Paul, I don't see a man who never failed. He wasn't, you know, without sin like Jesus. He doesn't claim to be. He says in Philippians 3, not that I were already perfect. But Paul goes on to say that he's an, he is an inspired prophet and when he speaks under the power of the Holy Spirit, he speaks the truth. And the more that I listen to that voice and the more that I read like First and Second Peter, the more that I read like the book of Revelation, the Gospel of John, the more that I realize that I'm listening to the words of truth. And from the depths of my heart, it's an incredible proposition that a man like Paul, like Peter, like John, could have been some of the worst criminals that have ever existed on this planet. Second of all, the Apostle Paul says that if our preaching is not cruel, the witnesses of Paul, they're charlatans, they're the deceivers of the worst kind, but also Paul drives it home that your faith would be totally vain. It would be empty. And then he says this about our faith. He speaks about you and me and speaks about what would happen to us. And he says this, first of all, if Jesus is not raised today, then I am looking at a bunch of unforgiven sinners. You are still in the realm of sin and of death. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are still a member of the kingdom of death, a kingdom of rebellion, a kingdom of sinfulness, a kingdom of darkness. Second of all, Paul says that the believing dead, those who have died in Christ, are perishing. You see, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then your loved ones who have died in Christ, if Christ has not risen from the dead, then your loved ones who have died in Christ are not in Christ. Because it won't do any good to be in a Christ who's dead. So therefore, all of our loved ones, my mom, Nani, Papa, Papa Lewis, dearest saints that have gone home, Kim's grandparents, a lot of your loved ones that have died in the Lord, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then they are perishing. They're still held in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death. Because the kingdom of death is an objective reality. You might not believe in the resurrection, but I want to tell you something. You've got to believe in death because it's something that happens every day. And what Paul is saying is there's a realm, there's a domain, there's a kingdom of death. And it's because of sin. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our loved ones who have died in Christ are still in that kingdom. And thirdly, he says this, believers in Christ are to be pitied for committing themselves to a lie. There's a song that's often sung, you know, even if it's not true at all, it was worth knowing Jesus in this life. Baloney. I understand the implication of that song, but it's totally unbiblical. If it all truths to be alive, that is pure existentialism. And it's a horrible thing that infiltrates our whole society because it makes us sloppy. You see, I want you to get a hold of this reality. If you believe Jesus is alive and you believe it's true, it's going to build your life like you won't ever believe. But a whole lot of us have this wishy-washy idea. It's just nice to have an idea. 
It's nice to believe in, in a story. And even if it all truths to be a hoax, it was so nice to sing, Isn't He Beautiful? So nice to hear Olin sing gospel songs. There's even a category over in Nashville, the gospel category. Who cares whether it's true or not? We like the style. My older brother said to a bunch of musicians one day, he said, you know the trouble with all of you? You look at it as if it's a style. You call it the gospel style. Don looked at all of them and said, it's not a style at all. It's a message. And it's either true or it's false. It's not a warm, gooey feeling in your stomach or a bad one. It's true or it's a lie. And I want to share something. If Jesus Christ is not a lie, it's crazy for us to be here. You ought to be pity. You got up on a Sunday morning. You are absolutely insane to get up on Sunday morning. How many of you can sleep in any other day during the week? And how many of you had a struggle getting here? Because it seems like all of the spiritual forces break loose upon you. You know, we're arguing with one another. Hurry up. Come on. Let's go. Hurry up. Well, I'm going to leave you here. How many of you go through that on Sunday morning? Well, if Jesus Christ is not alive, stay home. Why go through the agony? Eat, drink, and be merry. Let's get some beer, go to a good game, and let's enjoy ourselves. That's all there is. The tragedy, that's where a lot of you that believe in the resurrection are living. Paul drives it right home to you. Decide. And I challenge you, children, young people, moms and dads, Dave Wurtson, decide. Because if Jesus Christ is not alive, then we are to be pitied. We have, we have bought the biggest con job that has ever been given to the human race. I mean, it is the, the most incredible sting that could ever be put upon somebody. And Paul says, if in this life all I have is Christ and there's no future, this whole thing is true, and I went around telling people they could be delivered from their sins by believing in this ultimate con Galilean carpenter. See, that's the way Paul thinks. But he doesn't end there. One of the greatest conjunctions in all the New Testament is right here. Look what he said. But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. And all the people said, but Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what that means? Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday conquered death. And just as certainly as ranchers can go out, and when the barley or the oats come in, there's the first fruits of the headed grain. The grain heads out. And there's some first fruits that head out early. And a rancher goes out and he gathers those first fruits and as he walks through his field and as he plucks off those mature heads, he rejoices. Because he knows it's not just going to be that first headed out grain. That first headed out grain is proclaiming a message. Rancher, it's just beginning. It's just beginning. You're going to see the biggest explosion of productivity that you've ever witnessed. Because this whole field is going to explode with fruit that will bring life and nourishment. That's what first fruits mean. 
And that's what Paul is saying. Jesus on Easter morning created a whole new kingdom. He created a whole new way of, of life, a whole new humanity. It's resurrected humanity. That's what Paul talks about here when he talks about for since death came through a man. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. And this is what he's saying. All of you are in Adam when you're born. As I look at this audience, you are in Adam people. And Paul presents an analogy here. He says, Adam yields sin, yields death. Now you all know that's true. There's not a skeptic that can deny that because when you die, you'll be dead, 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 and you'll be dead because of Adam, and you don't have to believe in Adam, but you'll still die because it's reality. It's objectively true. You can't escape it. As in Adam, all die. This whole planet is a great big funeral home. Nobody gets off alive except for a few like Elijah and those that are alive at the rapture. As in Adam, all die. Now that's a bummer. And that's, a, that's, that's not just a fact. It is a debilitating, it is a destructive, it sucks your emotions, it sucks your life. It's what some of you are going through. You see, as you grow older, you begin to realize, I'm not going to live forever. The teenagers in this room, they're going to live forever. That's why we can drive at 85. We couldn't possibly get killed. I'm indestructible. You can bang my head right through a windshield. I'll live. I'm Superman. We don't think about that. That's why moms of teenagers just cry at night and they're so scared. When you're young, you think you're indestructible. When you're 50, 55, 60, you realize, man, I'm not. You know why? Because you've had a lot of objective data. You've lived through a lot of real life experiences. You've gone to funerals for teenagers, for babies, for middle-aged people, for adults. And when Paul says, as an Adam all die, you go, that's true. But you know what's wrong with some of you? That's all you got. Even some of you that are in Christ, you live in Adam. You see, this life is getting to you because your body is perishing, it's getting older, and this life is all there is as far as your perspective is, is concerned. And that's the idea that's being told us again and again and again. And Paul says, but wait a minute. As certainly as there are those that are in Adam by birth, and then by nature, and by sinfulness. There are also those who are in Christ. Adam founded a humanity of death. Jesus Christ founds a humanity of life. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become not the sons of Adam, but the sons of God. Not the sons of death, but the sons of life. Not the sons of perishing, but the sons of eternal living. What a contrast. And you move from skeletons in your closet and terrible feelings and horrible fears and death is the great enemy. You move over to another kingdom where you're following a savior that's already objectively risen from the dead and he's just the beginning because Paul says, for as an Adam all die, so also in Christ, all will be raised from the dead. And the all in Paul needs to be qualified by all who are in Christ. 
all who have a relationship to him. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, which has already taken place in history, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself. That would be the Father who put everything under him, under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. It sounds like double talk a little bit because the logic is so tight and so precise. But let me summarize it. This is what Paul is saying. Right now, we do not see all things subjected to Christ. Death, according to this passage, is an enemy, not a friend. And we're, we're perishing because of this enemy death. There's a part of our humanity, there's a whole part of our personality that's being sucked down, that's being pulled down, it's why when I work with people as they begin to really be pulled down, one of the bottom thoughts, and it's a thought that almost everybody has at some time or another in their life, why don't you just end it all? You see, that shows you. I want you to see the direction of being pulled down. There's an enemy. There's a whole kingdom of darkness that Satan rules over and he's a liar and a deceiver. He lies to us and he says, this is the only kingdom there is. It's a kingdom of death. It's a kingdom of perishing. It's a kingdom of meaninglessness. And you say with the preacher of Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, all is empty. If you look at life just from this perspective, it's a kingdom of meaningless, agonizing death. And Paul says, but that's not all there is. Paul says there's another kingdom. It's a kingdom of life. It's a kingdom of re resurrection. And what he's saying in this passage is that not all things have been subjected to Christ yet because there's still death and our church family still has to reckon with these forces of evil and with these powers that move into our life and try to suck us and try to destroy our life. But Paul is saying this. One day... One day, those who are in Christ are going to have that same resurrected power of God that moved into the corpse of Jesus. We're going to have it gathered all the dust of our bodies, transform it, and we will conquer death. And we will live forever and ever and ever. I close with this. Do you believe that? Maybe you're old here today. Does death scare you? It should. It scares me. It's an enemy. A terrible, terrible enemy. You can say, oh, no, it isn't. We just, just sleep, and it's a nice, beautiful thing, and we put makeup all over it. No, it isn't. It's a bummer. It's a terrible, terrible enemy. It produces terrible depression. The living take about two or three years to even begin to operate normally again. They never quite get over the loss of their loved ones. It's an enemy.
But the enemy, for sure, is going to be beat. You know how I know? Because Jesus Christ is alive today. Now that's the truth that you all knew when you came in here. But when you're driving in your car or when you're struggling in your home life, it might sound very simplistic, but it's not simplistic at all because it's true. If you'll affirm the faith, Dave Wurtson, this isn't all there is. He's alive. You can doubt it. You can argue about it. But he's alive. And there's good, solid, objective proof based on the witness of reliable testimony that this faith of 2,000 years is the faith, the truth. He's alive. And I would ask you as we close this teaching time together today, would you allow that truth to wash over your souls? Just meditate on it. Allow the voice of the Holy Spirit to use it to give you light. It's the most blessed truth that's ever been given. Death is an enemy. I love the realism of that. I love the absence of pretext. I, I like the absence of poetry even. I hate to sit in a funeral home and have these squishy, whooshy, melancholy poems. Because that's not what death is. And oh, I thank the Lord for funeral directors who believe the reality of Christ. Because Christ says death is an enemy, but he's beaten. And one day he will be totally locked up forever. And we will be set free to live with the Son and like the Son forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, up from the grave he arose. And because of that, we can sing in our hearts, up from the grave we will arise. To be absent from the body will be to be present with you. But at the coming of the Lord Jesus, those in Christ will be given a resurrected body, equipped to live with you for all of eternity. It's an old truth. It's a straightforward truth. But it is the truth. I pray that it would minister strength. I pray that it would minister power and great motivation for us to proclaim that truth into all the world, beginning right here at home. I thank you so much that Jesus is the first fruits of a mighty, mighty crop of resurrected saints that will be raised and will have a body like his glorious body. Use this blessed truth of the historical reality of the resurrection to minister peace and joy and hope and life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.